Welcome to episode 231 of Destination Linux. Now, whether you're brand new to open source or you're a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name's Noah, and I'm delighted to be here with you today. Joining me are my three co-hosts, Michael, Ryan, and Jill. And we have an exciting episode coming up for you on Destination Linux this week. We're going to talk about where Linux is going on the desktop. I know. There are a lot of rumors about the Linux desktop right now. What are they? Is there any merit to them? And what are the retorts, if any? We're going to talk about that. Then we're going to take a look at Google's effort to harden the Linux kernel, plus our tips, tricks, and software picks. All of this is coming up right now on Destination Linux. In the community feedback this week, we go to the DLN forum at dlnforum.com and found an interesting question from community member The Last Ninja. They say, I have been ProtonMail user for two years now, but when the current deal ends, I plan to swap to Tutanota. The main reason being ProtonMail currently does not have an Android app that works without Google Play services, which means no notification, which has caused me real issues in life at critical times. Uh, Tutanota has an app on F-Droid, and, but will not be able to use it in the Thunderbird, so that's kind of annoying. But it does have a Linux desktop app. So anyone with experience thoughts on Tutanota, what are your thoughts when you're using this service? So what do you guys use? For me, it's ProtonMail and Tutanota. I use both. I'm ProtonMail hmm. only. Yeah, I pay for ProtonMail service. With Tutanota, I use the free account. I have a Tutanota account because so many people were telling me you've got to check it out and utilize it. And it's okay. And I think for certain applications and use cases, it's fine. I just personally trust uh, a lot. I have a lot of trust with ProtonMail because I've been with them for so long. And I just like the way their services work. I like the look of it. I like the inherent security and privacy that they have included within them. That's not to say Tutanota is not a option. In my opinion, it's not a bad option for people either. It's much better than Google services. It's much better than using Gmail or anything like that. And I say either one that you're going to go with, you're going to be, you're going to have a better time. But for me, ProtonMail, I would rather log in through the web interface and use that as my primary. I'm the same way. I, I, if you know, the thing is, first of all, Andy is exceptionally open with the direction that the company is going, where their values are and how they plan to serve those values with their product. Um, and so what I would tell you is I would start there and then work your way backwards. So for example, if there's an issue with it not being on F-Drive, maybe reach out to ProtonMail and say, hey, would you put this on F-Droid? That exact situation came out um, with Element, right? They had published to F-Droid. And when the Google Play services removed Element from the App Store, they came out on Twitter and said, hey, we're out of the Google Play Store, but we're still on F-Droid. And so that was a way that, you know, because the community had reached out and said, hey, could you please push your product here? And they said, yeah, we're absolutely willing to do that. Um, it, it gave them some built-in redundancy when Google failed them. So I would suggest let's try to fix those those problems if we see them. And then if you can't fix them, then maybe move on to, to a different service provider. But uh, anytime I go with a service provider, I'm always looking for somebody that has an established track history of doing uh, of doing the things that they say they're going to do. And I think ProtonMail uh, has that in spades. So it's yeah. my recommend, be my recommendation. But Michael, do you use either? Uh, I've used ProtonMail, I've used Totonetta, and I also have an account on my own like self-hosted thing, which uh, masochism don't do that. Uh, this is just a thing that I've already set up for a long time ago, and I like to you know mix it in into various play different desktop and uh, clients and try out different things. So I've used Thunderbird, I've used Mailspring, and all these things. And I do think that 
uh, ProtonMail is a good service. Uh, I, I'm not really sure exactly what the Google Play services problem with the notifications aspect is for the ProtonMail. Well, he's saying if you if you mm -hmm. don't have Google Play services, then you can't get the app. If you don't have the app, then you don't get not push notifications. Oh, I see. GM. I see. I got you. So yeah. because they're using only Fdroid, okay, that makes sense. Uh, so that would be great if there was, uh, you know, Fdroid options for those users. And apparently, uh, you know, Tutanota has that. And it's I, I do think that Tutanota would be a good option. I don't have any issues with their services. I think they have a good service in general. So I think that mm -hmm. Tutanota is great. ProtonMail is great. And for me, I can use kind of any email. It doesn't really matter. So. As long as you're not using Gmail. Jill, what are you using? Don't say Gmail. <laughs> well, I do have a Gmail, but that's that's not my main account. Well, we all have one for spam. I'm talking about your regular account. Yeah. yeah. So um, I use, I've actually been using Tutanota um, because it's it's got a really nice, clean interface on Linux. And it, it has an app image, which is really, really nice. And speaking of which, we interviewed Hannah Basakoff, a press officer at Tutanota on Destination Linux Absolutely. episode 201 back in November. So go yep. take a, a watch of that episode. And um, I also like Thunderbird too. So that's, that, that's kind of my go-to. And then I bring everything into Thunderbird. But if you like for this person, they've been using Proton Mail for two years, and if they like it, I really like Noah's suggestion here. You should really get involved in the community and ask them, and, and reach out to them nicely to ask to see if they would go out on Fdroid, and then see how many people are interested in it, and see if they would port there, because this is a group of people who are definitely willing to make their services available for Linux users and other distros and things like that. For instance, their bridge technology, they use Proton VPN working, of course, on Linux. They've, they've created a lot of things in the open source community. So I think if you reach out to them, you request it, they know it's something people want. They'll probably go out there and add it. But if Tutanota is the alternative that you want to try out, give it a try and see what you think. They're two very different worlds, in my opinion. When you log into one or the other, they look very different. And depending mm -hmm. on your personal preferences, one might be more appealing to you than the other. So we'd invite you to check out the episode that we did with the interview with Tutanota. Also, I'll give a shameless self-promotion for Ask Noah episode 124, where I had Dr. Andy Yen on it, and he introduced us uh, to ProtonMail, what its features are, what they represent, what their values are, and also episode 188, where Dr. Andy Yen joined me to talk about their privacy and security enhancements and how they're uh, how they're dealing with uh, some oppressive countries and, and helping people get around the 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 roadblocks that are being put up by government, so to speak. And so, uh, mm. but whatever you go with, we want to hear about it. In fact, whatever you're experiencing, what your problems are, what your solutions are, we want to hear all of those because we love hearing from our community, which by the way, extends all the way around the world. And so what we want you to do is get your official DLN mug, fill it with some coffee or bubbly, sit down at your nearest stool and send us an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. If you'd like to join the community discussion, then join us on the DLN form by going to DLN form. Com. This episode of Destination Linux, it's brought to you by DigitalOcean and their new app platform. So as a developer, as a geek, you want to play with toys. And so you come across a new software stack or you come across a new project that's up on GitHub or GitLab and you say to yourself, that's the answer to my question. I wanted to have that thing. I need that solution. I want to get it now. How do I do it? Well, before it would involve something like you'd have to go to Dell, you'd have to buy a server, you'd wait a few weeks for that server to ship. Eventually it would arrive. You'd call four or five of your buddies over and have them help you get it out of the box because they were heavy. And then you plug it in and then your wife comes down and asks why a jet engine's running down the basement. You say, it's just going through the boot up sequence. It'll cool down. And then you pray that the fans 
quiet down later on and it doesn't actually have to run that loud because it's already <laughs> been determined now that it doesn't meet the spousal approval factor, right? You can throw all that out the window with DigitalOcean. All you have to do is skip all that steps. Go back to the, hey, I have that solution. I want to do that. Click on the button and it takes your code repository and spins it up on a production server in DigitalOcean's data center. Now, DigitalOcean was the first server company to provide all SSDs inside of their servers. They have a one gigabit uh, bandwidth limit on each of the servers. So when you spin those servers up, you know that you're going to have access to the internet. You're going to have uninterrupted access to power. You're going to have uninterrupted access to cooling. And then they're going to swap those servers out for you every few years to make sure you're running on the latest and greatest hardware. And as a listener of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, it's better than for free. DigitalOcean is going to give you money to try their services out. You know why they do that? Because, well, a couple of reasons. One, they know that once you try it, you're going to be hooked for life and you're going to become an addict. You're going to be a droplet addict. You won't be able to get off. You'll be like me and you'll have to rerun your budget just to figure out how many DigitalOcean droplets you can buy. If you get past 25 of them, you have to go through a process to ask them, hey, can I please have more droplets? And they'll say yes, but there's a process to do that. And you'll hit that process in no time once you figure out how fantastic they are. They know that's going to happen. And they also want to sponsor this show because they appreciate that the content that we're doing and so they give us this link. It's do.co slash DLN. Close your eyes. Memorize it. Do.co slash DLN. Mm -hmm. They didn't even put the comma in there. They wanted to make it as short as possible. Do.co slash DLN. You type that URL into your computer. What that does is it redirects you to their site. You get $100 credit on your DigitalOcean account that you can spin up a $5 droplet or 20 of them, or you can spin up a monster-sized droplet and recover your son's Minecraft world, which I did. I use DigitalOcean's power to do that. But no matter what you use DigitalOcean for, it sends a message to them that you're thankful for the content we produce, you're thankful for the services they provide, and you need access to their world-class data centers. So go to do.co slash deal and get started with that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. And a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week of Destination Linux. There are some people out there in the Linux space talking about you know something that's kind of interesting that we wanted to talk about in the show. So they're putting out the message that Linux on the desktop is on its way out or something like that. And some of their basis for their arguments is is interesting. So let's let's talk about it. We're going to break down a few of them and we'll go in more details later on. So here's the the breakdown, the summary of what they've been saying. So uh, kernel has become bloated with millions of lines of code being added yearly, uh, making that too difficult to maintain. Make too many people contributing to the code, making it complex, and security becoming more of an issue because of the complexity of it. That kind of thing. Also talking about how Google is replacing Android with Fuchsia, and you know other kernels not lasting as long as the Linux kernel. Maybe maybe it's like kind of dated or something. Also saying something like the uh, toxicity impacting adoption or commercial interest are that are increasing. Uh, how that's, uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but community is dying because people couldn't meet and have conferences in person in 2020 and 2021. Like that one, like that one's too ridiculous. That was a little to bit me. of a stretch. It actually make me wipe Kubuntu off my laptop and go back to Windows yeah. now that I'm thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, that was an interesting that sold perspective. Me. That sold me. Also, uh, IBM buying Red Hat and uh, Linux Journal dying, which it actually didn't die. And, nope. and <laughs> Microsoft WSL and Google Cross Senior as other options. And the, to be clear, this isn't talking about open source software dying or the Linux server dying. Specifically, these claims typically were like we'd follow by they're just talking about the desktop. So th it's it's interesting, and I wanted to, ha uh, to talk about this and and like an open discussion method. So uh, will the Linux kernel continue to exist for the desktop, or is it the end is near or whatever? 
uh, what these well, people have been suggesting. Let me add suggesting. one more caveat here that we've been we've got several emails on this topic as these things, these videos and, mm-hmm. and things have gone out. We've gotten several requests in uh, on the forums, and we've seen it in discussion as well with people. So we thought let's tackle it and take a look at it. That's why we're we're kind of going into it. Otherwise, we would have kind of ignored some of this uh, silliness here. But I think it's important for those who are just joining the community. We have a lot of new people in the community to kind of talk about this because they see this stuff too. And when they see this type of stuff, they may be like, well, geez, I'm not going to spend my time for the next three months learning this Linux thing if it's just dying and it's going away. So that's why I think it's really important to kind of touch on the topic. So I guess. Very good point. Where do we want to start in this mess? Uh, Jill, kernels become bloated with millions of lines of code being added yearly. Therefore, um, lots of people contribute it to it, and it's awesome, and there's tons of code to it, so therefore it's going to die. What are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's absolutely ridiculous, because as we all know, there are more lines of code for Microsoft Windows <laughs> than there are Linux. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're telling me that the future, which is, of course, Windows, right, Yeah. <laughs> uh, has more lines of code than this, and they can maintain it? <laughs> How could that oh, be possible? <laughs> well, also, there's. It's funny because when I when I saw when I saw the the conversation about the multiple lines, more the millions of lines of code, and it's like you, some of that code is maintained by the companies that the hardware is for. Like Intel maintains yeah. Intel code inside the Linux kernel. The the PlayStation Five controller code that was added to the Linux kernel support was made by Sony, who makes PlayStation. For those who don't know. And so the, these things are not issues of having to deal with it on our, on the Linux side because the companies who are wanting the software supported or the hardware supported by the software are doing that work themselves. Yeah. And also if the Linux desktop were truly dying, <laughs> there wouldn't be much development and code being written in the first place. Oh no. See, Jill, that's <laughs> just for the servers and somehow Aww. the server side there. Cause in a lot of this stuff, there, there's a lot of comments about we're not talking about Linux on the servers because obviously that's dominating. Oh. Well, if the servers are around and existing, the code contributing there, why is the desktop going to go away? Suddenly? Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, where is it going to go? We have Fedora, you know, which is awesome in Fedora 34 using BetterFS, Wayland, and Pipe, Pipewire beautifully, and Valve pushing development on Linux. Those technologies wouldn't be progressed if we were truly dying. <laughs> That's true. Okay, Jill, but Google. You know, <laughs> Google is replacing Android is the rumor with Fuchsia. And this, uh, this could be a big deal because the one platform that I personally can't stand gets represented as a Linux kernel, uh, Android, because of its privacy and security disaster that it is, uh, may go into another micro kernel that's being written from the ground up known as Google Fuchsia, which has exactly one device today that Google Fuchsia runs on, which is the Google Home Hub. Is this is this the disaster? Is this going to take out Linux as we know it because Google launches Fuchsia and moves Android to Fuchsia? No, they just wanted to control their own kernel for Android. <laughs> you know, you're just biased. If- Noah, uh, <laughs> tell me here. I mean, Google is going to destroy <laughs> Linux with Fuchsia, right? <laughs> So if if I can, I want to take a slightly different approach. I think that mobile is more than likely going to be the thing that offers a threat 
to any desktop operating system to include Linux, then Windows or Mac OS. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, when we start looking at the mobile infrastructure, when I say mobile infrastructure, I'm basically referring to Google Android and Apple iOS. What do you get with those two platforms? Why is that so appealing? Well, there's a there is a perceived ease of use, right? Everybody else around you has those devices and they all know how to use them. So when you don't understand how to do something or when you have a question, you just turn to your immediate left or your immediate right and one of those people will have the same device that you have, you'll be able to ask your question and likely get the answer. If not, going onto the internet, you're very likely to find the answer on the internet because everybody is talking about the devices, the shared devices and the shared platforms that they're all using. I and mean, that's, that's true for iOS. Secondly, that's there is a lot for Android. That's, that's, that, is, that is true for Android. I, my, my wife came to me the other day. She had an issue. With, she has a Samsung phone. She had an issue uh, with the do not disturb functionality. And it was different on the Samsung phone than it was in stock Android. But even, just searching her model name and the, and, sure. and the do not disturb functionality brought up because there's so many people using that particular model of the S11. Right, with so, so, so there is a shared, there is a shared uh, um, um, use case there, and that simply doesn't exist uh, with with more niche operating systems. There is a lack right. of responsibility that comes with those mobile devices as well, right? I don't have to think about the software updates. I don't have to think about what software is compatible, incompatible. That's all handled for me by Google or Apple. They know they negotiate with those people. They deal with the app store. They pull the bad apps out and they send me the good apps. Again, this is not accurate. This is just the perception, right? They pull all the bad apps out. The apps that are there, those are the ones that are good and work and I have the rating system so I can tell how the app is going to work ahead of time. By the way, I'm not going to lose any data. I don't have to be responsible for my data anymore. And I don't have to worry about my data loss because all my photos, those get backed up to the cloud. Those are all backed up and they're running there safely for me. All of the things that I do and all the work that I do, all of that is going to be backed up. And then when I want to upgrade to my next device, all of that data, all of those apps, all of my settings, all of that stuff is going to easily and trans and seamlessly transition over to my new device. So I don't have to think about it. I don't have to become a mini system administrator to use my device. I walked into my cell phone store. I plunked down a thousand bucks. They handed me the device. I took it home. I used it. When I was done with that device, I came back to the same store. I plunked down another thousand bucks. They handed me another device. I carried on my merry way. That is a very, very appealing way to approach technology for a lot of people. The question that we have to be asking ourselves is what ultimately is powering all of those mobile devices? How do those pictures wind up mag automatically back on the device? Well, that's happening thanks to the cloud or as I call it, someone else's computer. And so as we move towards this model, of software as a service and everything running on a server, then we start to look at, well, what has the best software to run a server? What is the most reliable, uh, resilient, secure way to run on a server? And what we found is really we've moved beyond single servers. It's not practical anymore for Google to go put a server in a rack and then say, Joe's iPhone connects to that server, right? That's not a reliable, redundant way to, to, to run an infrastructure. And so what they've done is they've moved to things like containers and isolating individual processes and then scaling those individual processes out to multiple servers wherever the user is. And that kind of experience can only be delivered by one operating system. And I, I'll give you three guesses. Two of them aren't Windows and, 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 and Mac OS. And so you eventually arrive at the fact that most of the innovation that is happening in the technology space, even if it is being consumed by the end user on a mobile device, is actually happening at the server level. When Twitter rolls out a new feature, that's happening on Linux. Then right? why would so something like Chrome OS be far more popular than it is? Chrome OS would be more popular 
if the hardware, I think, were better, which Google is trying to kind of I mean, shift. There's a lot of them now that have really ramped that up because I think they thought the same they, thing you're saying. App, still absolutely. not selling. Yeah, but they're getting closer, right? They're getting they're They've certainly penetrated into the education market, which primarily has been almost exclusively run uh, by Mac computers. And and, and as they've continued to push out, you see more and more businesses that are saying, hey, I'm going to get on this Google Workspace thing. Why do I want Slack and Teams and all these other things? I just get this Chromebook for 200 bucks or 500 bucks or whatever, sign in, all my stuff is there. So I think we're slowly moving that direction. But what I would encourage us to do and what I would encourage us to concentrate on is focusing on values and not on tools. For a long time, I really rejected this idea. People would say, oh, Linux is just the tool or Windows is just the tool. And I, I always rejected that concept because it's not just a tool. It is a tool, but it is a tool that has tremendous consequence for my life in terms of privacy and security, reliability, and my data integrity. Well, that's and the same so, reason why I don't accept Android as a true Linux variant, because oh, sure. even though it has some basis for it, it doesn't hold any of the values to what you're saying here right. that I hold true with privacy and security. Right. So let's start from that rock and move our way forward. If we focus back down on the values, what are we actually focusing on? Well, in this crowd, we would probably say that we're focusing on privacy, we're focusing on security, we're focusing on stability, we're focusing on reliability, and we're focusing on community. Now, where do you find those five or six things? Where do you find those core values? You find them in an open source ecosystem and an open source operating system. And so I would tell you, don't let marketing shape your views. Don't let marketing make decisions. You make your decisions based on a 30,000 foot view. Is there any particular reason why my operating system couldn't run something like Adobe Photoshop or Adobe Premiere, whatever the thing is? No, of course not. It's, it's, it's purely a human constraint, a decision on a business not to port that software over to this platform. And so when you look and try to answer the question, is the Linux desktop dying? The question you ask is, are people's values shifting? And if you walked up to 10 people on the street and, and pulled them aside and sat them down and said, what are your values? Do you care about privacy? Do you want all of your stuff on? Most of those people are going to say, yeah, I do care about privacy. Yeah, I do care about security. Yeah, I very much care about stability. I want reliability. And I like the, the concept of community I wasn't aware that I could get those things. I don't know how to get those things. And so the problem isn't so much that Linux is dying and so everybody's moving away. It's a function of people want these things from their technology. They want to well, own There's their a technology. reason why Apple is spending billions of dollars on campaigns talking about being the privacy and security focused operating system that yes, it was. The, the fact you is what to, you, what you yeah, said, you Noah, is wasn't true, in my opinion, just Eight years ago, going down the street and saying, hey, is privacy and security important to you? They didn't know. It, people didn't know and they didn't seem to care. But today, mm -hmm. today, it's starting to finally shift. It's starting to finally mm -hmm. change. And the company, the only one that I really see capitalizing on it, again, whether you believe it or not, uh, is Apple, right? They're marketing right. it at themselves as that if, because they if realize you refer to my previous bullet to point, though, I would highly encourage us not to let marketing shape our view, right? Because to a certain degree, we don't know if Apple actually cares about security or if they've just looked and said, you know, Bill, our metrics show us that people care about this whole privacy thing. And so if we roll these things out, we actually have more control over our ecosystem and we have an excuse to kick those guys out. By the way, it's going to sound really good when we spin it as a privacy thing. What do we do about the FBI? And all? Uh, We have the backups. They're unencrypted and we can hand those over anytime. So as long as the device is encrypted, that's, that's fine. That all the data actually comes back to us eventually. I mean, I love that concept of don't let marketing influence you. And that works for people like me, you and our friends and our circle and our communities. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But people outside of that, people who aren't geeks like us, to them, that marketing is all they're looking for. They're like, man, you know, this 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 Noah guy I met one time, he was talking about security and stuff. And it really does. I do really see an issue here now. And then they see the commercial for Apple going, hey, by the way, we're the most secure and trusted devices out here. OK, that's where I'll go. You know, that that's kind of it is shaping the population. Right. But I mean, at the way. same time, at the same time, you, you I see that marketing ad come out and then immediately following that, I see, oh, and so and so's iPhone was confiscated and eventually they were able to break in and got right. X, Y, Z. I don't know. I, I, I think to a certain degree, it comes down to, first of all, you can't lead a horse. You can lead a horse to water. You can't force it to drink. Right. And so at the end of the day, every individual is going to make their their own mind up at what platform they want to trust and, and be there. But if if that were true. If the Linux desktop were dying, and really what you're saying is end user consumption of Linux devices, right? That's really what we're saying by the Linux desktop, because it means a lot of different things these days. That, if that were true, then I would I would suspect that we wouldn't see such a culmination effort on things like Linux mobile. You wouldn't see PostMarket OS and Manjaro ARM and all of those things, which, by the way, are based on the Linux desktop. <laughs> then they just took their code and ported it into a smaller device and made it run on ARM platforms because people want smaller devices they can yeah. carry in their pocket. So if we, when we, when we attach these arbitrary labels, we start to remove nuance and we start to remove critical thinking. We no longer evaluate things based on values. What people, what are people searching for in a solution? Instead, we try to dumb everything down and go, well, they picked the iPhone and not the Linux laptop. So clearly, the metrics say that the iPhone is winning and the, the Linux desktop is not that that's a very one-sided that's a that's a very narrow way of interpreting information and looking at available information and I don't think it paints a full picture of what people want out of their technology I think it paints a picture of what choices people have today it paints a picture of what their appreciation is and understanding of what their available options are and then how they're making choices based on that today that's what I think it paints all right so Interesting points. Michael, what are your thoughts on this? Is the desktop dying? Uh, definitely not. I think that there's mm-hmm. there's different aspects of this topic. And I think that Noah was, was right about how it's it's a much broader concept and it's not just a narrow view, especially considering a lot of people who buy phones are also getting laptops. And it's not just the metric of just they're going for a phone. I mean, there are some people who do just use a phone or just use a tablet and that kind of thing is true, but they would only use a laptop in the past because they had to, not because they would choose it anyway. So in the sense of like, there's different cultures of computing as well. There, well, we there's, have mass shortages of hardware for a reason. People yeah, are people just, want hardware. There's not just mass shortages of phones. There's mass shortages of yeah. laptops and desktops and desktop components and, and everything. So yeah. yeah. And and it's more of like the the space of the what people want. People think that the desktop is dying because of, you know, insert any variable. But you can kind of flip around those variables and say that those are are, are reasons why it's not dying. Like for example, with you know, you, we talk about how you know gaming is a factor. Like prior to you know ten years ago. Gaming was unheard of in Linux. We had like 12 games, something like that. Or, I mean, not exactly 12, but it is a very small number. And now we have thousands of, of games available because of the effort Valve put into Linux and, you know, standing behind Linux as a, as a platform. And also you can take the same stuff there and saying like how much we have grown in terms of hardware support thanks to the efforts in gaming and the thanks to the things like... I thought like, you were going to say thanks to me, but okay. Sure, <laughs> sure buddy. And things, thanks to uh, you know the Croton effort and stuff like that, and the the compatibility with the Wine platform and all these things made it so that 
more and more in, uh, attention is going to the Linux platform. And like what uh, Jill was talking about, how you know there's there's no more hardware interest in these you know massive corporations bringing Linux to the desktop on their laptops and things like that. So like for example, Fedora last year, Fedora was launched with the Lenovo products and stuff like that, which was the first. Mm-hmm. I think Lenovo's pushing towards that kind of thing. And with like, we have Dell and HP and also putting on that, we have more and more people putting into it. And also I think that the Linux desktop is the best experience it ever has been. So when people switch to Linux, it's a lot easier than it was 10 years ago. I mean, there is an extreme lack. All of what you're saying is completely true. And one of the reasons why the desktop certainly can't go away yet is number one, people having access to high speed internet, which is a problem all across the world. And number two is, of course, things like high-end computing, which isn't your everyday user. So most people could switch away, um, but high-end computing is needed for a large portion of users, whether they're doing video rendering, creation, animations, or gaming. And all of these gaming cloud services came from a bunch of big names out recently. You had NVIDIA involved in it. You had Google involved in it, and they've all flopped. Why? lag issues, not having licensing issues, performance problems. There's just been a whole plethora of reasons why they've all failed, even with people with high-speed internet, high-end computers on the other side of it, all of these things. So I don't think the technology's there yet. But Noah's definitely right that things are going mobile. And the one area that Linux lacks heavily, and the one thing I would say gives some credence is we don't really have any good mobile options right now. But we are, but here's the thing. Somebody wrote into my show a few weeks ago and asked and said, and I'm really frustrated with where we're at with mobile. You know, do can you can you can you help me or shed some light or 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 give me some encouragement? And what I would tell you is with the advent of the Pine Phone, it has flipped the Linux mobile ecosystem on its head. There yep. was a time I remember when I remember when Canonical first announced that they were going to do Ubuntu Touch. And I was I was like, wow, actual Linux on a phone. This will be interesting. And myself and many other people were skeptical that this could happen. Google, iOS, those are your pillars. And now there's going to be a third comer. Come on, really? You think you're going to do that? And if that was true seven, you know, five, six years ago, it's definitely true today, right? And at the same time, I have more confidence in Linux mobile today than I did back then. Because when the Pine phone came out, all of a sudden, all of these people went around and went, oh, we could build a, a, a Linux desktop on, on a little phone. Yeah, we can do that. We can scale it, just curl, put the little things there. Oh, look at that. I threw it together, right? And in just a couple of months, you have things like Manjaro, Manjaro Arm. You have Sailfish OS. You have Postmarket OS. You have uh, the uh, the um, Ubi ports, which is the continuation of Ubuntu Touch. All of these operating systems have just sprung up. And a big reason for that is for the first time in human history, you can go purchase a device that you have out of the box administrative access to where you don't have to spend the first like three, three weeks with your new brand new $800 phone going, gee, I plug this in ADB. Oh, oh my gosh. Uh, mm-hmm. I was trying to install an alternative ROM in an unrelated note. I've just bricked my $800 phone. None now of that. I have no warranty, it, blah, blah, blah. Right. Exactly. All of those things prevented people from even beginning to try stuff on their phone, let alone actually making any real progress. And so with just within a year or two of having actual hardware available for people to hack on, we have usable mobile operating systems. They're not great. They're certainly not a daily driver. They're no replacement for your Android or iOS device, and they're nowhere close, and they don't claim to be. But what they are is a definitive representation of what a couple of guys just throwing some code together can get done in a few years when you have 
a suitable hardware platform. And now you have companies like Sony coming out with their open devices platform that say, hey, we're going to make really good devices that you can load alternative operating systems on. And the Pixel 3, weird as it is to say that a phone from Google happens to be the only phone that Graffini and OS uh, can use their hardware security chip to get the most hardened version uh, of a mobile operating system out there. And so they make a security hardened version I mean, of it. I agree with everything you're saying. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, that's true, but we're still a decade behind there in the mobile world. We are, but, but, but consider this, right? We're a decade behind in the user. And this is why I say it's really important to have a, a 30,000 foot view of where we're at. Yes, you're right. And the end user device that they hold in their hand and how they access those things we're behind, but you know what? We're, light years ahead. In fact, we're the dominant platform where all those services originate. So really sure. what we're talking about is minimizing the gap between the little app that we publish that lets you access the cloud server from Android and having that replicated on this new one that is a Linux-based operating system, right? That's a much smaller gap to close and a much more understandable, conceivable, hey, we could achieve that than it is trying to say, hey, we need to build an app store and we need to build an ecosystem like Google and Apple. Not really, because th th at the end of the day, all those are is a collection of other software projects that are already running on Linux servers on the back end. Yeah. So, Jill, final words here on this. What are your thoughts? Um, what are some things that you noticed in some of the arguments here about the Google thread? I think we've knocked a lot of these down. Any others you want to touch on? I, I really think uh, one of the big deals is that the high volume of sales from the likes of System76 and Dell proves that the Linux desktop is not dead. <laughs> it's growing, <laughs> is, right? These are it's new It's growing. Things. There's this high demand. Yeah. They can't keep the computers in stock. <laughs> That's true. So, you know, with, with uh, developers and content creators, like, like uh, Ryan and Michael was saying before, um, also with AI and, I, and people moving over from Windows IT to Linux IT, um, it's, we're growing. Our desktop is growing. And in fact, it was just a few years ago that it was 1% of, of, you know, the ranking of, of operating systems. And now it's over well over 2%. And that that's actually huge. Yeah. It's actually honestly bigger than that, but we can't track it all. Yeah, it, it's way bigger than that, but we don't know yeah. exactly. These that's are based the on like having a estimates. private and secure platform. You yeah. can't track the metrics perfectly. <laughs> and and yeah. even when there's telemetry that is valuable, that isn't violating any privacy security, there's still you know pushback against that. So it's even harder to kind of gauge exactly where it is. So it's probably much higher than what we think it is, yes. but it's still, it, I mean, it's, it's not going to be like a, a, you know, 60% or something like that, but it's going to be a huge, it's much bigger number, but also consider the difference between a 1% and a 2% in the world of computing. That is millions of people and millions mm -hmm. of devices. So it's, it's, yeah. it might seem like a small number, but it also, it is, it is a huge number because overall the actual, like the metrics of it all. Uh, but I, I agree completely that, you know, the desktop is growing. It's not, it's it's better than it's ever been. I think that there's so many ways that it, I mean, a pipewire is um, is awesome. Like yeah. the, being able <laughs> to make pro cons prosumer audio stuff, the pro work of of audio on the desktop in a much easier way is 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 a game changer, and it's going to be even bigger when the other distros jump in. And I think that that you know that that's not a thing that the servers want. That's not a a server-based, cloud-based thing that matters at all. That's a desktop-oriented thing. Maybe it's an enterprise desktop. Maybe it's a whatever, but it's still a desktop-specific thing. They're not making Pipewire for servers because you're not you're not logging into the servers to do your your uh, audio synthesizers and whatnot. 
You know, that's not a thing that's going to happen. So I do think that it's, it's, it's growing in a lot of ways. And I do think that there are some issues to talk about in terms of like the mobile aspects and that kind of thing. But overall, I think we're growing so huge. And like Noah's talking about with like the Pine Phone, it's not even been two years. It's been like, I think a year and a half since we got the first Pine Phone out. And it's already been such a huge game changer in that space. And there's already been iterations of the Pine Phone for it getting better. Like there's so many cool things. I'm that waiting are, for that Pine Phone Pro. Yeah. yeah, I can't wait for the Pine Phone Pro. Yeah, that's yeah. going to be amazing. <laughs> but I also oh. want to talk about like the way that, you know, there's certain things that are happening with like the, the, the flat packs and the snaps and the app images of the world. These things are actually increasing the amount of, uh, of in- attention to Linux as a desktop and increasing the, the ability for people to pick a distro and not really have to worry about which distro it is because they can just have the support for the apps that they want thanks to these formats. And with uh, Red Hat announcing last year, I don't remember what month it was, but last year they announced the Red, the Red Hat runtime for Flatpaks, which to me is a huge thing. And now it's, it sound, it's a very complicated thing, but as like an overview thousand foot overview that we're talking about like this is such a huge potential because it means that people can make flat packs using this runtime and have support with the red hat brand attached to it and 10 years of that support so let's say for example you know there are some companies that make software just for red hat or you know inherently just for centos and that's like you know davinci resolve they only do that but this way they could do that work on this runtime and it be available to everyone there's a ton of potential mm-hmm. there. And I think that that's a very important thing that's not talked about much. And I think there's a lot of stuff like that while it's, you know, back end stuff that doesn't seem like it's, you know, to the developer, the desktop developers. I think that, that, you know, flat packs themselves are specifically for desktop and the work done for the Red Hat runtime and the and done for the flat pack, the flat hub and all of these so things. So the desktop mm-hmm. environment for yeah. Linux uh, or Linux desktop is not dead. Then let's not even oh. close. I, I think I oh. think that it's I think it's better than it ever has been, and I think that it has the the path to grow even better. And I think that most of the the arguments I've heard about this, you know, there are a couple that are valid in saying like the you know there the things we it, should think about things right? that things yeah. that we should consider that do have some impact. But there's a lot of stuff that is just a bit of uh, fud. Hyperbole. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and and we can't forget the little Raspberry Pi that oh, uh, that yeah. is the top selling computer in the world running a Linux desktop. <laughs> That's true. And it's the one Linux computer you can go into any store, Best Buy's, Target's, everything and pick one exactly. up now. I can't believe it. I see it everywhere. It makes me Even so happy. $5 starting at five bucks. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. All right. So I I hope this helps. If you've seen this argument, if this has made you worried about the future of Linux at any point, rest assured that while there are opportunities for growth, while there are things that we can tackle later on, that the Linux desktop, as far as any of us can see anyways, is here to stay and it's just getting better. And also something that's also getting better all the time, that is Bitwarden. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. So you can go get your account at bitwarden.com slash DLN and get an awesome password manager that just keeps getting better. It has so many great tools and available to you so you can get a secured vault to store your passwords in and automatically generate those passwords with, an, with a generator. You can also automatically fill in passwords with the uh, for login forms and that sort of stuff with Bitwarden. It does it all, all this stuff for you and it does it across all different types of desktops or different types of devices, whether you use a web browser or you have mobile apps or desktop application needs or even 
even on the command line, you can do that as well. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves those devices. So you know you're the only person who has access to that data. You can be, you know, rest assured that that data is, is secured and safe because all that is done locally on your devices. So when it goes to their servers, it's in this, you know, gibberish nonsense of encrypted data. And you know that it's, it's only one, you're the only one who has the key to be able to get that back, that data back, which is another factor of why Bitwarden is awesome. But in addition to all of this, Bitwarden is also 100% open source software. So they, they understand the value open source. They understand the philosophy behind it and they are completely embracing it. And that's what makes Bitwarden just even more awesome than already having great software. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? You can, but I think you also want to check out their premium account, but you can get a one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, party customer service, and so much more. And you get all this. Wait, Michael, wait. What's, That's got to be $25 a month, right? Oh, not $25 a month. I mean, it's worth $25. I would pay $25 a month, but it's not that. It's less than a dollar per month. You can actually get $10 per year. We'll get you a Bitwarden account, and you can actually have it for your personal individual account. You can get organizational accounts, business accounts. There's so much great things. And to having the business thing, I actually helped someone set up a business account where they could share their passwords between the different like people in the company and that making it so much easier and it's so affordable for all of that and also people like you can get a family account so if you want to share it with your wife or your husband or you want to share it with your kids and that kind of thing you can actually it makes it so much easier to have this sort of stuff bitwarden is just awesome and it helps you get peace of mind knowing that your passwords and other sensitive data is safe and especially you want to check out that premium account because you can like basically show your appreciation or a company that truly understands open source and also appreciates the, the Destination Linux podcast by sponsoring. So, so go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. And speaking of uh, the Linux desktop not dying <laughs> and, <laughs> and a, a major project that is contributing, Google is in the news this week for contracting Miguel Ojeda to start implementing Rust into the Linux kernel. Yay. That's huge, right? Rust, this is pretty this, big. This is really big. You know, we already have some some Rust window managers out there, including right. the left window manager, tiling window manager. That works really well. I enjoy using that one. So, but what's cool is Miguel Ojeda, who is doing this, has such an impressive resume, uh, which includes work involved in programming CERN's large hydran. Hydron Collider software for high performance, their high performance computing computers. Wow. And he sees this as an opportunity to implement more secure code with Rust and getting more programmers involved in developing development of the kernel. This so is the biggest deal, true. I think, out of all of this, right? Because <laughs> yeah. there's this fear of what happens when Hartman or Torvalds all go away at some point. Yes. And who's going to take over the C language? And there's plenty of people out there who still learn C and know C, but not in masses, right? There's not a huge group yeah. of people coming out of school learning that language. But Rust is a very popular language right now that continues to grow. And I think what's interesting about Rust is that it was created by another company I really like, Mozilla. Mm -hmm. In addition, so you've got Mozilla in there, you've got, but the idea of bringing more people, getting more people involved to contribute to this code is to me the most exciting part about this. And the fact that 
Google's kind of financing this. Well, like you said, Jill, it kind of puts to rest that rumor that the Linux desktop is dead, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and what what's really cool is Google um, said they're interested in increasing the security of Linux through moves like this for Android and Chrome OS. So, you know, they want that Linux kernel to be very, very secure, even if they use it only on the back end. <laughs> but see, if they were completely sold on going to Fuchsia, they wouldn't be worrying about this right now, right? Yeah, they, exactly. They, they would be like, hey, we're going to be removing this Linux thing anyways. We'll patch what we have left and we're going to focus all of our attention on Fuchsia. But I mean, Google is known for killing projects off, what, every three, four months? Yeah. 80 versions of it. I mean, who says Fuchsia even goes anywhere past the hub that they have there? I think a lot of people speculate and create headlines and rumors with this stuff. And I'm not saying Google doesn't go that direction. They're probably putting their eggs in multiple baskets as a company the size of Google needs to do. But you can see one of those baskets they're investing heavily in is still Linux. <laughs> is Linux. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is just that this is great news because, uh, you know, uh, uh, many people had appro approached Linus uh, with implementing Rust into the kernel, and he was for the idea because it's you know a modern uh, coding system that a lot of people love, and it's actually fairly easy to code in. I've done a little bit of Rust myself. <laughs> I would say, of course you have, Jill. But <laughs> of course you have. But as far as learning Rust, Jill, when you say you messed with it a little bit, you also play in Python as well. Obviously, yes. two different tools and use cases, but what's the learning curve difference for you in, you know, starting to learn Rust versus starting to learn Python? I was curious. I wanted to ask yeah. people who've written in Rust, is this a language that's just far easier to pick up? Because I haven't investigated it myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually did a beginning class in Rust for uh, the Linux chicks of Los Angeles. And uh, we'd also done Python as well. And it was just as easy for the students to learn it. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That's and, pretty telling, right? Yeah. And well, the beauty of it also is that it bare metal as well as, as you know, um, up, up higher in the software development. So it, it, it has a nice, you know, in between um, yeah. as far as code goes. Yeah. Rust is a nice thing because it, it's, it's complicated to the point where it can do powerful things, but it's yeah. not so complicated that it becomes like, a barrier to entry and but at the same time it also is um you know focused on trying to make it reasonably simple to already to get to get started with rust but also be able to port your knowledge of another language to rust so it's it's mm -hmm. it's a really wonderfully designed language and it when when mozilla talked about it with the first when they first started it i think they were making it for servo and then they uh started just like kind of branching it out to its own thing and it's it's kind of uh interesting because you know, Rust became, you know, it, it's, it split away from Mozilla because they were like, this is so important. We need to make a foundation for it. So they created the, the Rust Foundation. And, you know, a lot of companies are jumping onto it and making it, you know, a much more impactful uh, type of language. And also there's been people who have been talking about putting the Rust language inside of the kernel for quite a while. Uh, because mm -hmm. of like just how much people are, are a fan of this language because it's, it's, it is powerful but also reasonably uh, uh, under, it's a reasonable language to get started with. You know, like a lot of people talk about how Python is a super easy language to get started into programming. And I think that that is true also. It is, but Rust is not as easy as Python, 
but it's reasonably easy in comparison to other languages. Very yeah, for... the, the, I like what you said earlier that the barrier to learning Python is really low. You yes. can get really advanced in yeah. Python. Yes. And the barrier to Rust being low, you can get really advanced in <laughs> Rust, but you don't lose people the first three days of class where they go, I'm never going to learn this thing. It's too complex. And I think that's the difference is that you have that ability to show some um, actual progression with these languages like Rust and Python before you get into the advanced stuff where you don't lose basically your interest in it. And I love that Linus was open to this. Right. Because yes. what if he was just like, no, it started in C, it's going to stay in C. How many projects are like that? And he's not that way. He's like, no, if we want, let's bring more people in, let's get more people contributing in the popularities there in Rust. So let's start doing some stuff in Rust here. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of potential. And it's really cool to see Google, you know, tr investing in making that mm -hmm. sort of thing happen. Because if they didn't think that the Linux kernel was going to be around for very long, they wouldn't have, you know, decided to like, you know, let's help bring this new language into the kernel even more so because there's already people who have been working on it for a few months, uh, you know, putting that work in and having Google jump in to help fund that work. Google constantly messes with my no. brain. One yeah, side exactly. of my brain's like, Google bad, stay away. The other side of my <laughs> yeah. brain's like, thank you, Google, for doing this really cool thing. Like, it, it's really confusing sometimes to talk about this company. It stinks because they yeah. could be cooler. <laughs> they could be more trend-setting right? From an overall popularity standpoint, I'm talking here than Apple ever was, especially when you think about when Google first entered the scene. I mean, companies were doing studies on their work culture and how they were doing things so differently than other corporations. And they have this incredible minds working there and this ability to really change the foundations of what, how we look at technology in the future. And then they do these other things that just mess it all up. And if mm -hmm. they would just focus on stuff like this, where yeah, people would be progress. fans of them, <laughs> companies like Apple would have no chance to even compete against them because they're open, right? Everybody yeah. can get involved and be cool. If they would just leave my personal info alone, we would be good, Google. We could be on good terms. <laughs> we'll on good Why terms. can't we be friends, Google? Why do you do yeah. this? <laughs> Help me be friends with you again, okay? Let me love you. Let me love you. Let me love you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so this is cool. I have another cool thing for you all. It's in the gaming section this week. <laughs> Have you ever wanted, do you, are you familiar with R-Type, Jill? You remember R-Type? <laughs> yes. Okay. And Michael, <laughs> R-Type, I'm not going to ask oh, you yeah. no, because it's not a person shooting people. So I don't think you probably know R-Type, but it's Running spaceships. Gun. <laughs> it's spaceships, mass battles, and Nintendo and thing. R-Type was a really popular game out there. But the problem was spaceships. Some people don't want to be a spaceship. That doesn't, they don't want that to be mm -hmm. their main character. They want to be a goose. And that's why the game Mighty Goose is featured this week in the gaming section, because it's just like our type where you have tons of enemies on the screen. You have all kinds of fireballs and shots and lasers and the things attacking you in the scroller. But you're a goose. Naturally. And you have, you have to kill him off. This has 234 very positive reviews for those who think this is just silly nonsense. Well, it is silly nonsense, but it's kind of fun, silly nonsense here. The game describes itself like this. It's a fast-paced run-and-gun shooter starring a bounty hunter goose. Use epic weapons, devastating war machines to battle against screen-filling bosses and hordes of enemies. If you're into this genre of game, which a lot of us growing up in the gaming world were, mm -hmm. this looks like a fun <laughs> take on that, Jill. Have you ever played Mighty Goose? 
No, I haven't, but the trailer looks pretty it's impressive. Ridiculous, right? In the best yeah. way possible, ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely uh uh want to want to play this. And one of the other cool things is that the musician is a uh, named Dominic uh, Ninmark. He he does one of my other favorite synth rock uh soundtracks on uh Blazing Chrome, uh which is kind of a, a B-rated uh run and gun. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious and he also did the soundtrack for moon rider and gravity circuit and gravity circuit is also available on linux <laughs> very cool yeah this is available yeah. on linux as you said it it's it's that ridiculous fun michael yeah. like the movie i invited you to watch yesterday attack <laughs> of the killer donuts in which yeah. <laughs> you denied coming over to watch attack of the killer donuts and yes this is a real movie and yes i really invited michael over but he didn't want to come watch it it's that kind of ridiculous fun yeah. that you're missing out on. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I'm going to not be able to watch the Tag of the Killer Donuts. Uh, but this Mighty Goose thing <laughs> looks looks great. It looks like a fun game, like in the, the vein of like, um, I, I wasn't familiar with R-Type, but I, I, when I when I looked it up, I looked and it was very similar to like uh, Contra or like a yeah. Mega Man style. And Mega that kind Man. Of, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that is a fantastic idea in terms of like, uh, I just love that style of game and that kind of platformer. So I, I am definitely very interested in this uh, Mighty Goose, uh, partly because I like that kind of game and also because of its ridiculousness. Yeah, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's fun because it's doing a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, take on the genre, which, yeah. nice. which is a really a lot of fun, and I love those kind of games. And it was interesting because uh, Painted Black on a YouTube chat says, sounds like Earthworm Jim. Yeah, it, it, it looks like it has some elements of Earthworm Jim, at least nice. as far as the story goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, very cool. You can go check out Mighty Goose right now because it plays on Linux. Yeah. And this week's software spotlight is also on Linux, but you know how that works. So <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, Descreen. I think it's Descreen, Descreen. Uh, it's a desktop app that allows you to turn any device that has a web browser into a secondary screen for your computer over Wi-Fi. So this is really cool. Mm. Basically, the screen can be used to uh, mirror an entire computer display onto another screen that has a web browser. Also, you can basically mirror an individual application to if you want to, and that's so that'd be for like uh, presentation purposes and that sort of thing. And uh, but the best feature is, like I said, you can use any device as a secondary screen as like an extended desktop method. And this is a very cool thing. For example, if you have a extra tablet that you have when you travel, you could use that to set it up with your laptop to be a secondary monitor with that while you're traveling. And that's it's a really cool concept. So if you want to check it out, discreen.com, and we'll have a link. Uh, it, it's spelling, especially in the show notes. <laughs> We talk a lot about encrypting your data and making sure it's secure and private by default. So maybe you've asked yourself from time to time, well, how exactly do I go about encrypting my data? Well, we have a simple tip for you this week that will help you do just that. Did you know that you can encrypt files using GPG? And this is a simple software package that is available almost certainly in your, in your distro's repository. And so once you've installed GPT or if it's installed by default, you can encrypt a file just by using the, the, the command gpg space tax c and then the file name. Now this will prompt you for a password or if you have a key file, you'll be able to set that up in your gpg configuration. But in, in, in any event, that will encrypt your file. If you'd like to then decrypt the file, you can use gpg tac d and then the file name uh, to decrypt the file. GPG has more advanced functions that you can try out. 
If you'd like to learn more, we invite you to grip the man page of GPG by typing man uh, GPG in the terminal. Stay tuned for future tips and tricks. And if you're just getting started with Linux, we invite you to go back and watch previous episodes where we've covered everything from Docker to all the things you need to know about Linux. And also, of course, you can go to destinationlinux.org slash picks to see every single pick mm. we have ever done, whether it's a <laughs> software spotlight or a tip of the week. It's all right there for your heart's content to consume and every in every which way. It's at destinationlinux.org slash picks. So a huge thank you to each and every one of you for watching or listening. However you do it, we love your faces. And if you want more DL, you can a patron like all of these folks you can't see them they're behind the scenes in our super secret virtual stadium i think it's like four hundred thousand square foot now it's massive they have so much room for activities so much room to mess with linux <laughs> back here uh becoming a patron but you also get unedited versions of the show vip access to events live recordings of destination linux every sunday with your special virtual seats that nobody can see you in and come and chat with us directly plus you get the patron only after show that you get to hang out with as well. It's pretty awesome stuff. Go to Patreon or Sponsus to sign up. <laughs> we have land parties in the skybox. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, the skybox. We do. In addition, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now live at DLNlive.com. The best part is everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. And we can't wait to see you in the chat. And also go right now to dealinstore.com where you can pick up some swag like t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, uh, backpacks, aprons, all sorts of stuff, including the pseudo shirt, a pseudo show shirt that you can check out. And that is available at dealinstore.com with all sorts of other great goodies there to check out. And we have so many amazing shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have the pseudo show, the Ask Noah show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek channel, and this time I did it wrong. <laughs> it happens. Dabby. It happens. It, we, it happens. It's, we're all taking turns forgetting how to dab. <laughs> yeah. DLN Extend, Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and get your Fedora hat on with our latest show, the Fedora Podcast. So go to DestinationLinux.network and subscribe to all these wonderful shows to keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everyone have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. We'll see happy you next Father's week. Day. Yeah, happy Father's Day. <laughs> see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, patrons, turn on your cameras, turn on your mics. Come hang out with us. Come talk oh, oh, to oh. us. Talk to us about the desktop, Linux desktop, why it's live and thriving.